from Comcast NBC Universal Lift Labs, It's Ideas Elevated, the podcast that elevates innovative entrepreneurs and their ideas. I'm Danielle Kahn, head of Lift Labs, and today I'm speaking with Alex Kentrowitz. Until recently, Alex was senior tech reporter at BuzzFeed News, and now he's the founder of Big Technology, an independent newsletter and podcast that focuses on the tech giants. He's the author of Always Day One, How the Tech Titans Plan to Stay on Top Forever, a book that explores how even the most successful companies still operate like startups. In this episode, Alex and I chat about the Always Day One concept and how companies can adopt this mentality in order to stay ahead. We'll also talk about the differences between being a visionary and a facilitator and how every founder must find a sustainable balance between the two. Alex Kantrowitz is right now on Ideas Elevated. Welcome, Alex. I know that you recently left BuzzFeed. Do you want to just talk about that and what you're up to now? That's right. I have joined the ranks of independent journalists. I think unlike when I started out reporting maybe eight years ago, there's a real opportunity for journalists to make it on their own, uh, not inside any big publishing house or any big publishing company, which we know have their issues. And so two weeks ago, I started out on my own journey, launching my own publication, but really it's a newsletter on Substack called Big Technology and a podcast which should be up pretty soon. And the focus is going to be all about the tech giants, Amazon, Apple, Facebook, Google, and Microsoft, uh, which I cover in the book, Always Day One. Um, so I'm going to go way deeper into the stuff that I had been writing about in the book, but also simply like following my curiosity. And, you know, there's so many, how many, I mean, think about every tech story you have. There's 20 publications that write the same story. It adds value to no one's life, uh, except it makes it a little bit more difficult to comb through the results on Google. So I won't be doing any of those. We need to have a story on this stories. Everything's going to be original. Uh, it will be stories you can't get elsewhere. Uh, and for me, it's much more exciting because like, I'll be able to write outside of the news cycle and try to make sense of what's going on out there for people. So it may work, it may not work, but I figured that this would be the time to try it. And uh, this is, we're talking now, sort of at the end of week two uh, of this experiment, so. Your startup, your own startup. That's right. So if anybody <laughs> out there has advice on how to do a good startup, I'd be happy to speak with them afterwards. <laughs> I'm sure you'll be interviewing a few of those people. You can ask right. them that tip. Yeah. Um, and, and welcome to the podcasting world. It's it's a lot of fun. A lot of people do, uh, do tune in and they really are interested in so much of what is out there that isn't necessarily, you know, we don't take the time to report on in a written story, but having a conversation, uh, I can tell you personally, is a ton of fun. Um, so thanks for being our guest today and taking this time. You have your first book out and the concept is built in some ways around the idea, you know, I guess Jeff Bezos's Amazon world day one is basically code for inventing like a startup um, with regard to, uh, you know, with little regard to legacy. And you, you interviewed uh, more than a hundred people, uh, people like Mark Zuckerberg to some of the other, you know, hourly workers and, and people at all levels, you look at the culture in the book, the technology, the process of these tech giants, and how do they stay successful? And so can you just talk about day one, the day one mindset? What does that mean? What does it mean to you? And uh, how are you going to use that in your new startup, by the way? 
Yeah. Uh, so day one, like you put it, means inventing like a startup with little regard for legacy. And to sort of intro you into the idea, I'll tell a quick story. In 2017, Jeff Bezos gets in front of the entire Amazon company in one of these big company all hands. It's in an arena in Seattle. And he's got a pre-submitted question uh, on, on a note card. And it says, what does day two look like? And he says, what does day two look like? And he goes something like, day two is stasis, followed by slow, painful decline, followed by irrelevance, followed by death. And that's why it's always day one. And, you know, when you first see this, uh, it really seems like what Jeff Bezos is doing is encouraging uh, it, his employees to work night and day, to work holidays, to work weekends. And day two might be, OK, take your foot off the gas pedal and then you're going to be dead. Um, so essentially, like day two might be it might mean like we're adding 100,000 people a year. We're almost at a trillion dollar market cap. So can't we just like kind of take it easy and be in day two? And I thought this was initially, you know, it's easy to look at it as an example of Amazon's hard charging culture. We all know about the New York Times article that talked about people crying at their desks and, you know, people who are in close to the Amazon orbit have heard war stories about folks doing that. And, you know, you could if you look at the video through that lens, you could say this is a little bit concerning. And Jeff Bezos really needs to check himself and actually think about what it's like to give his employees good work life balance. So to me, that is the misconception about Amazon. Yes, people work hard inside Amazon, but for them, day one doesn't mean it's not a hustle porn term. It doesn't connote night and day, weekends and holidays. What day one basically means is we've built this big company. We're going to approach every day as if it's our first. So think about all the businesses that we have under the umbrella inside Amazon is what Bezos is saying. Don't worry about them. What you need to do is build towards the future. And the second you think that the businesses that we have today are going to be enough to take us into the future, that's when we're going to begin our slow, painful decline and irrelevance and die. So essentially, he's saying we have assets, but the goal is not to milk them. The goal is to build more. And that's the way to grow as a company in the modern time that we live in. Um, and I think that mentality has been pretty significant in terms of uh, Amazon's ability to succeed because typically you have a big company, they grow bureaucratic, they milk their asset, they fall apart, they're done. But in this case, Amazon keeps growing. And I think a lot of it is due to this mentality. Is it about building on existing products at all? Or is it about building new products all the time or, you know, something new all the time? Or Great question. does he, did he believe in building on top of something? Yeah. So I think you have two cultures out there. You have cultures of refinement uh, cultures that build on top of existing things. Um, and oftentimes that's to milk an asset. Um, so two examples of that is Apple today. Apple is a culture of refinement. Its asset is the iPhone. Uh, and any of the folks out there listening who've seen this whole uh, flare up with this email service, Hey, where, where Apple's trying to charge them 30% of uh, all revenue or kick them off the app store, that is a true behavior of an asset milker. And an asset milker looks to refine the product, puts a few more bells and whistles so it can sell an upgrade and make more money. Another example of this is Microsoft in the Windows era. You know, Windows 95, Windows 98, Windows 7, 8, 9, 10, whatever it is. They were a key example of a company that would build on. I think what Amazon does so well is it builds brand new businesses. And this is really what the always day one mentality is. It doesn't mean you shouldn't improve the stuff that exists today. 
But they say, so here's an example, like they are willing to build new businesses that cannibalize their existing businesses uh, because they understand where the future is going is not where they are today. Primary example of this is Amazon opening up its website to third party uh, merchants and ending up building a huge service that's dedicated to fulfilling the orders of people wanting to buy from these merchants. Amazon builds itself into a pretty enormous company by being a first party marketplace, buying the products, putting them in the fulfillment centers, shipping them to us when we need them. So actually, when you bring in a third party marketplace and you set up a fulfillment operation for these folks, you're competing with your own business. And you're actually cannibalizing this first party marketplace that you worked really hard to build. I mean, if you read the Everything Store by Brad Stone, you have like Amazon's people who are uh, in the corporate offices stuffing toys up on the shelves of the fulfillment centers just to make sure that Amazon's first party business was doing okay. And I think this willingness to say what we had up until this point was good. It got us here. But at this point, we need to think of the next thing, even if it's going to take our own business out. That's the secret behind why Amazon's been so successful. And the same thing applies to Facebook and Google. They followed a similar pathway. And Microsoft is actually this amazing case study because under Steve Ballmer, they were definitely this refinement culture, a culture of asset milkers. And then under Satya Nadella, they said, wait a second, we can't be a desktop operating system in the age of mobile and cloud. That's how fast it happened. It only took a few years where they were irrelevant and had followed this sort of day two path that Bezos had laid out. And they said, we need to actually go in and start selling the products that are going to even, even if they hurt Windows, cloud computing is a great example. They'll take us into the future. And that's what they did. And then Microsoft goes from being a joke to being the darling of the tech world right now. I mean, no big scandal, biggest market cap. It's pretty good. So I would say that, you know, this, this commitment to, um, Again, approaching everything like it's your first day, building for the future instead of focusing on the present is really what's helped the tech giants dominate in a way that no set of big companies uh, who are this old at this, you know, in this type of environment where it's so easy to be disruptive have. And that's really the key behind their success. In your book, you unveil a lot of the secrets and, and the way forward for everyone who wants to compete with and beat, beat out the legacy companies um, or at least give it a good try. Why was that an important angle for you in how you wrote the book? Why do it from that perspective? So I would say there's two ways to try to beat the tech giants. And the first way gets a hell of a lot of attention. And that's to have the government come in and break them up and regulate them. And I do think there's a role for the government to play in terms of reining in these giant companies uh, who do cross the line you know, fairly frequently in their pursuit of growth. The other way that I think, you know, companies can beat these companies is by co-opting the systems that they have internally that's allowed them to be so successful. Look, it's not only crime uh, that's helped Amazon, Apple, Facebook, and Google, and Microsoft become so dominant. There's got to be something on the inside. They're making things people want, and they're doing it at a, at a steady pace in a way that, like, people can actually, that the new products that they release have grown and caught on. And so for me, like I'm a journalist sitting here in Silicon Valley, and I have heard all these stories about regulation and overreach, and I think these are all important stories. But what I found was missing in the conversation is an empowering message to companies outside of the tech giants that say, look, there are things that you can do that they do well, that there's no, you know, there's no price for, and that's changed the way uh, that your cultures operate to bring them more aligned with the good things that these companies do, the more inventive uses 
And if you do that, you'll stand a chance. But I think that because the message has been so weighted towards their the crimes and the um, the government stepping in, a lot of people out there feel they don't have a chance. And what I my message on this in this book is, you do have a chance. And if companies are you know just going to say I'm going to wait till the government breaks them up before I can actually start my march towards becoming a meaningful business, or you know I won't get into that business line because. Um, it's, you know, the government's letting them have free reign. These companies are just going to be holding them back. And so my message with the book is you can win in the tech giants world. First step has to be co-opting their systems. And, you know, we should definitely pay attention to what the government will do. Uh, but worry first about your own shop and fix that. And then we'll figure out, you know, what our you know broader systems will do in terms of handling these companies. Your book involves a really fascinating look at the founders and or the CEOs of these companies and, uh, you know, visionary, uh, you know, is, is still the ultimate compliment in some people's minds for a CEO or for a team member. The concept that a, a company's success or team's success rides on the ideas and the sort of like their inner circle comes up with. However, you note that the leaders of the companies in this book, you think are not visionaries. They're actually facilitators, which is a fascinating concept. And when you look at horizontal leadership and the power of horizontal leadership, it's so important. Tell us the difference between visionary, what you mean by visionary versus facilitator. Yeah, I, I hate the word visionary, although I understand why it's so important. It is it does sound nice to have someone call you a visionary, so I could see why people want that. In the 1920s, average company on the Fortune 500 would last about 70 years. Today, if they're lucky, they last 15 years. So you've had this true speeding up of the economy, and that's because companies can start up at the lowest cost possible, actually the lowest cost of all time, and in the shortest amount of time ever today. So advantages that might have lasted a lifetime a decade, I mean, a century ago, last a blink of the eye today. Uh, and we see it all the way in the economy. I mean, look, think about all the great companies, you know, that seemed like they were inevitable and would never falter just a few years ago, and now are in the trash heap of history. So what type of leader do you need? I think that when your advantages can last a lifetime, you need a visionary leader. This person had the idea, and now the company is living off of the idea, and it will forever. Hell yeah, visionaries, this is what we want. But today, if a company doesn't learn to adapt and reinvent quickly, it's going to quickly be on the outside looking in. And that's why you need facilitators, because no one person is going to be the source of all great ideas in any organization. And if anyone who believes that they are going to be that person, I think they probably need to go have some conversations with people to really realize what the truth is, because it's just impossible. And in order to be able to keep up in such a fast-moving economy, what a company really needs is a facilitating leader who will say, I'm not going to be the source of all brilliance. And what I really need to do is look to my employees and find the ingenuity bubbling up for them and build pathways to turn those ideas into reality. And actually, when you dig under the surface, like we hear so much about the CEOs of these tech giants, about Tim Cook and Mark Zuckerberg and Sundar Pichai and Satya Nadella and, and Bezos. And, um, you know, it's amazing when you actually start to dig under the surface, the thing that's really helped these companies thrive is their leader's ability to say, you know what, I'm going to take a step back. Of course, I have my ideas, 
But the most important thing I can do running these companies is to create pathways to elevate the ideas of the people underneath me. And when they've listened, that's where their biggest changes and the most effective outcomes for their business have actually started to emerge from. And would you say that a lot of them have a strong number two who's also has that same quality? I think that their number twos are important. I mean, you look all over the place. Uh, Zuckerberg has Sheryl Sandberg. Cook has for a long time had uh, Johnny Ive, although that, that sort of petered out after a while. But this is a concept of a number two. Yeah, you generally need a good number two. But again, this is so you can think of the company as a unit at the top that makes the decisions and has everybody else execute, execute or a unit that works to create the structures to bring these ideas to life. And I think that once you start to get in there, like, yeah, it definitely helps to, there's this push and pull always that a leader needs someone to balance them out because there's going to be parts of their personality that are going to be great. And there can be parts of their personality that need someone to compliment. Um, and so to put it nicely. And so, uh, so number twos are important, but I would say the most important thing is not a Mark and Cheryl at the top of a Facebook. It's the people underneath and the fact that they know that they have permission to bring their ideas up to the top and their group of lieutenants. And actually that's where the most important part of Facebook is, is, is the middle and the lower down versus the people higher up. Great. And you talk about um, that sort of inventive culture as being like an engineer's mindset. Can you talk about what you mean by that? Yeah, I will criticize a division of the companies, a company that I used to work in. <laughs> or, well, anyway, I'm sorry to all the salespeople out there, but we're going to have to do this. So I worked in sales and before I went into journalism and in sales, when you have an idea for something, the way it typically works is you tell your boss and their boss tells their boss and their boss tells their boss and their boss tells their boss until it goes to someone with decision making power. And it goes all the way up the chain. They play this terrible game of telephone. And if anyone alongside says, I don't really like that idea or they just don't feel like taking it to someone then it gets lost. And I think that companies have largely been run with sales cultures because, again, they had this big asset that the visionary would come up with and then they would go out and sell it. So they'd become sales cultures trying to milk that asset. In the world that we're moving into, where we're going to need to be much more quick and fleet at creating things, uh, that sort of sales mentality isn't going to work because it's not about milking that asset and selling as much of it as you can. It's about creating new ones, building new ones and, you know, building the future and not getting too focused on the present and the past. And so that really requires someone with an engineer's mindset. Now, I say engineer's mindset. It doesn't mean that if you're an engineer, you necessarily have this mindset. It doesn't mean that if you're in sales, you can't put this in. But mostly it's a it's a mindset that encourages building and creating and the listening to others. And I can talk a little bit about how an engineering organization works. And I break it down into three different categories. The first is democratic invention. There's a belief that anybody in an engineering organization can have uh, an idea. And often, you know, they go out and create it themselves. But most importantly, leaders take them seriously and they give them permission to come up with new ideas. Um, so they democratize invention. Usually invention is sort of kept up in the top of a company. And this is a way for them to say anybody can invent. Second is they have a culture of feedback. Feedback, you know, again, like I talked about the chain inside a sales organization. I think, you know, if you, you close your eyes and imagine a prototypical engineer and they're running right up to the CEO and saying, our product sucks. We need to build this instead. And there, this freedom to go out and express your mind is actually why engineering organizations are able to create 
Uh, it's because ideas for new things don't get lost because ideas flow from the bottom to the top. And the third part of the engineer's mindset, I think, is uh, is as equally important as ideas going up and down, and it's ideas flowing side to side, and that's cultures of collaboration. So if you think about engineering organization, typically there's a bunch of people, you know, working on a single project together, where if one of their things fail, the whole project will fail. Think about like a power grid, for instance. Very different from sales. I, when I was in sales, we had a number. We were responsible for calling through our universe, and that was it. We didn't really speak to other salespeople except to say, how's your messaging going? And we didn't really care about their accounts. We were basically just like, all right, well, I hope you don't exceed your quota by too much. Otherwise, you're going to make me look bad. <laughs> um, and so this culture of collaboration is really uh, important for engineers. And I think all of this boils up to the fact that if you're going to have companies that are going to be inventive, that organizations need to be thinking much more as if they were using this mindset of the engineer versus this mindset. And again, I'm sorry to my you know former crew, but of the sales <laughs> of the sales organization. Again, salespeople super important that the revenue engine of any company. Uh, but if they you know if they become if they can sell and think as if they were engineers and allow ideas to flourish, they become superheroes inside their organization. Great point. Your book launched April 7th. Your tweet that day read, bookstores closed, but you can buy online. <laughs> Basically, bookstores closed, but Kindle audiobooks and delivery are options. If you love books, I hope you'll consider picking up mine and others. How have you had to, like looking at, at current events today, how would you say that you've had to reshape your book tour? Clearly, you've also thought about what you want to do next um, in terms of your next chapter, literally, um, in your career. Uh, just talk about that experience. Yeah, so um, releasing basically at the, the the top of the first peak of this pandemic, uh, definitely not fun. Um, if I write another book, uh, I will make sure or do my best not to launch mid-pandemic. Uh, but like, you know, it sort of pales in comparison to like all the pain uh, that people out there are feeling. So I've spoken with other authors and we're like, all right, look, like this isn't ideal, but you know, if this is the worst thing that happens to us in this, uh, so be it. It's not really the most important thing in the world right now. But yeah, I mean, I definitely had to change. I mean, I had a whole, I was supposed to come to you guys to speak in Philadelphia uh, on the, the second day or third day after launch. Right. And then, um, you know, we said, okay, let's go online. I think we did the first, your first online event was uh, around my book. That was actually a lot of fun. Um, it was great. Yeah. Um, and I actually think that like, it's been nice going out to organizations. Like I basically put out this open offer to people that was like, if your company wants to talk about this, you know, send me an email and I'll set up a zoom. And I love like having a zoom, like, you know, for me, you know, showing up talking for 45 minutes or an hour and like seeing all the other, all these faces in the box and these, you know, the, the uh, family feud grid on my, on my screen and yeah. seeing them sometimes <laughs> holding the book or reacting to it. Brady Bunch. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, that's, that's been pretty cool. So yeah, for yeah. family feud, well, Hollywood squares is what I was thinking was about. <laughs> um, so yeah, it, but yeah, it's definitely been a total, uh, change. Um, Public speaking was something I was looking forward to doing. That's out the window. But on the bright side, it pushed me to, you know, for a long time, I was thinking, how do I take control of my own destiny? How do I be reliant on myself? And, you know, I did have that, you know, despite working within companies, I definitely had this entrepreneurial itch that I was really looking to see where it would lead. And so I don't know, who knows, maybe in normal times, it would have been two years, five years, you know, there's a uh, I, I, you know, I feel like it's very easy to say, oh, I want to do my own thing one day. 
and then just never do it. Yeah. Um, and this definitely pushed me in the direction. Um, you know, it was definitely this sort of exciting kicking the butt out the, you know, out the plane door. Yeah, it's great. Also over the past few weeks, obviously we've, we've been, you know, seen countless companies committing to investing hundreds of millions of dollars and addressing social injustices, committing, you know, to more inclusivity. How do you evaluate the tech giants announcements and actions more importantly? Yeah. I, I think we need to recognize that, you know, whenever, you know, I was, um, you know, NASCAR banned Confederate flags and I like did a tweet that was like NASCAR bans Confederate flags. Good for them. What took so long? And I had people very reasonably respond to me and say, like, look, like this is progress. Let's not criticize it. We'll take what we can get. So I do think there's a point to be made that we should be happy with the fact that it's now become popular uh, for companies to try to make progress in this area where that hasn't always been the case in this country. So that's good. The bad thing is, uh, and so, so I'm not going to criticize their individual efforts. You know, I applaud them for doing what they, what they've done. The thing that I think that we really need to have a conversation about in our society is that we're a sick society and it's, yes, it's, there's a racial component to it, but overall, like the way our economy works today, it, it just rewards winners and it crushes losers. And, you know, I, I'm reading this book called The Meritocracy Trap by Daniel Markovitz. It's very good. I'm only about 10 pages in, so maybe I should um, hold my reserve, hold my uh, review. <laughs> Let us but, know what you think. Maybe we'll have. But yeah, I think that like we talk about meritocracy, um, but we don't make opportunities available broadly. And if we want to have real racial equality in this country, we have to start at the very, you know, uh, the very bottom. Like we have to start with education and figure out how to fix our education systems so that we don't have a, a divide where, you know, somebody who's at an elite primary school is getting an education that costs $75,000 a year. And somebody who's not gets an education that costs a sixth of that. Mm -hmm. There's no way to balance out the economy, you know, no matter how many press releases people release without addressing the fundamental issues, you know, underlying all of this, this whole system. Just to wrap things up, um, I'm going to play a little game last few minutes here. Just want you to give me a couple of words um, as I describe, I say something. So a few words about what it was like interviewing Steve Wozniak. Okay. How lightning is this? Can I give like a 30 second response on it or 10 seconds? <laughs> okay. All right. Super lightning. Uh, weird. <laughs> it was weird and fun. I don't know. I love Waz. Weird. Yeah. What about Zuck? A deeply intellectual uh, conversation with him, um, which was interesting to hear his philosophy about, about the stuff. Wow. About stuff. Okay. Mark Cuban. Super chill. Um, had a glass of wine with him on the uh, on a rooftop in San Francisco. And felt like we could actually be friends. And former uh, Microsoft chief economist, Susan Athey. I mean, revelatory. It was nine months in on the book reporting process. I hadn't quite figured out what I was saying yet. And I walked into Susan Athey's office in Stanford with a bunch of questions and walked out with the answers. So shout out to Susan. Uh, New York Times or Wall Street Journal? I mean, this is a tough one, a little both, but I read the Times more often. And one tip for the audience. There's this book called The Magic of Thinking Big. And it just sort of shows that we often hold ourselves back because we put our own limitations on ourselves mentally. And just out, everyone out there just like realize the opportunity that exists if you make some scary choices and put yourself in a position to end up in, in a big place. Like to go out and, you know, get that big interview if you're, you know, 
doing media work or um, land that big client or get a big raise. Like this stuff is a lot easier than you think it is as soon as you allow yourself to surpass the fear barrier that you're putting up there on your own. Great tips. Alex Kantrowitz, author, founder, uh, new entrepreneur, podcaster coming soon. And uh, it's always day one. And thank you so much for joining us today. This has been Ideas Elevated from Comcast NBC Universal Lift Labs. If you'd like to be part of the Comcast NBC Universal Lift Labs Accelerator powered by Techstars, head to ComcastNBCULift.com or check out the show notes and apply today. Ideas Elevated is a Q9 production. This episode was produced by Kevin Schmidlin with editing and mixing by Max Graham and theme music by The Last Generation on Film. From Lift Labs, I'm Danielle Kahn. Until next time.